Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to show you the often more scandalous and darker side of history, especially this month here in October. We're leaning into spooky season by sharing some stories of ghosts and haunting and death and scandal, and a story today that has a little bit of that and more uh, around one of our favorite female spies. Um, but before we jump in, I'll introduce ourselves. I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And, and we're, we're the Rebecca's. I oh, see that time works so well. Yay. We're getting better. Um, this is not the first time we have talked about female spies on this podcast. No, it is not. We talked way back in. Was it May? It feels like May, a if you remember May. <laughs> back in the back in the May, uh, we talked May about. May feels like ten years ago. May really does feel like <laughs> ten years ago. Um, we talked about when World War II. We talked about Julia Child, who wasn't exactly a spy, but she certainly worked for the CIA. She did some sort of undercover stuff. And we talked about Virginia Hall, who really absolutely was a spy in France. Uh, I'm just sitting here, like, waiting for those Virginia Hall movies to drop because her life is so exciting and cinematic. How does that not happen? She did, She only had one leg. Like, she was, you know, went in twice. Like, if you haven't listened to the episode, Virginia Hall, like, deserves all the, like, plaques and movies and praise. She, she was, should be a way bigger pop culture figure than she, she is. She should. And, like, but typically of a lot of spies, not Rose O'Neill Greenhow, who we're going to talk about, but typically of a lot of spies, she was kind of, you know, under the radar. She didn't really make a big fuss out of herself. But we've are, so we've already talked about spies, and we're going to continue to do so. Uh, today, we're going to talk about Rose O'Neill Greenhow who's D.C.-based. Well, not anymore, obviously. Civil War era. Um, but uh, she was in D.C., and she is super fascinating. Yeah, so um, we're going to talk about Rose O'Neill Greenhow. We should just go ahead and mention that she is featured in a book called Wild Women of Washington, written by our very own Candon Arcianega. So we'll definitely be linking to that in our show notes. You can also pick up a copy, an autographed copy of the book in the Tour Guide Tell All merchandise shop. So be sure to check that out. Um, so I think most of the tour guides that I know learned about Rose O'Neill Greenhow through Candon's book because... Growing up in Texas, I feel like I got a little bit of Civil War history, but not a lot. And then when I jumped into college, I felt like we just sort of really skimmed over uh, the espionage aspect of Civil War. And I studied a lot more about kind of Lincoln and the Confederacy and these big players. And so Rose was a really new story to me. Obviously, I knew there were female spies and I knew there were spies in the Civil War. But it was Cannon's book that really introduced me to Rose. And now I work her into so many of my tours. <laughs> But to set the scene ever so slightly, um, Rosa Neal Greenhow is based in Washington, D.C. Uh, before and during the Civil War. Uh, Civil War Washington, D.C., I always try to make this sort of clear on my tours. But, you know, yes, we were the Union capital, but we were not a huge city at the time that the Civil War is breaking out. The population is somewhere at about 75,000 people as the Civil War is beginning. The Civil War is going to double almost the population of the city. So all of a sudden you're going to have this influx of military people and people coming to take advantage of the war, war profiteering, people who come to connect to these spy um, 
groups and agencies. And Washington, D.C. is truly just a stone's throw from the Confederacy. The Confederacy is just on the other side of the Potomac River. And although the Union Army occupies sort of the immediate uh, side of Arlington and Alexandria, it is not very far. We're talking maybe 60, 70 miles uh, before the Confederacy can close in. So throughout the Civil War, uh, Washington's sort of surrounded, sometimes at all sides, by enemy. And Maryland is sort of this hotbed for Confederate spies and sympathizers, which we talk about a lot on our Lincoln assassination tour, um, because that's where John Wilkes Booth and many of his conspirators are from. So DC, if you were living in DC during the Civil War, it was an exciting time, it was an economically prosperous time, yet it was also a terrifying time. And when we think about the Civil War and this idea of like neighbor versus neighbor, and you know, you can't trust the person next to you on the street, that's DC. And any minute they think they're gonna be invaded. Yes, no more, where is that more like true than in Washington? And there's also, you have a lot of people who come to DC, and it's interesting to me, and I mentioned this on my tours, that I come from the Northeast, and from the Northeast, Washington, D.C. is the South. And from where I'm from, D.C. is like the North. (laughs) It's like, right, like if you grew up in the actual South, like Texas or Mississippi, D.C. is practically Boston. Like, so it's an interesting perspective on sort of how we all view the city, but there's a lot of people from the South who will migrate to D.C. in the early part of the uh, 1800s before the war and stay here during the war, but kind of cautiously and their, you know, their loyalties are in question and there's like a large... Their loyalties and their financial investments. So much of the money in D.C. is really tobacco money and South money and plantation money. And I think that's really important to know and understand uh, that so much of the economic investment for people in D.C. is in the South, in in the the Confederate South. Right, in the Confederate South. I feel like, like so there's, first of all, large... I don't want to say pockets, like whole garments uh, of sections of D.C. that are really Confederate sympathizers. And, you know, more than sympathy, they're giving money, they're giving aid, they're giving comfort to the Confederacy. There's large sections of D.C. where that happens. And I always think to myself that I feel like in order to really appreciate Lincoln in some ways, you have to understand the geography of Washington because there's so many parts of it that, it could have all gone horribly wrong. Like, I feel like if Lincoln and his government had not been, stood so firmly that the Union was going to be preserved, people in Washington would have just been like, oh, okay, fine, and just let the Confederacy go. Like, I feel like there's so was so much sympathy for uh, the Confederacy in the nation's capital. Well, and there's so much in that first year where if things had gone different from a military perspective, the Union capital might have been taken and invaded. I mean, truly, it's sort of by sheer luck and kind of, you know, certain moves made militarily, but it was very close. The Confederate Army was not that far away. And spoiler alert, Rose plays a role in that. Yes, and Rose indeed plays a role in that. So let's come to to young Rose. She is born in Maryland. Uh, The date of her birth is actually debated. There's several documents, but let's say probably somewhere between 1813 and 1817, most likely 1813, 1814. She is born in Maryland on a small slave-owning plantation. So that is definitely the lifestyle to which she is born into. But she does have some tragedy. She's orphaned as a child. She moves to Washington, D.C. to live with her aunt. Her aunt basically runs 
runs a boarding house out of a building called the Old Capitol Building. It was a red brick building located today where the United States Supreme Court building is located. And they called it the Old Capitol Building because the United States Capitol was attacked during the War of 1812. August of 1814, British troops come, they burn the Capitol city, uh, they burn the Capitol building, they burn the White House. So while the Capitol is being rebuilt, the old Capitol building is where Congress meets. It would later go on to be the old Capitol prison. And it's funny to me that Rose lives there as a young woman because, spoiler, I guess, she's going to find her way back there later in life. Now, she is um, a, a pretty young thing. She's got a nice, a good background. So she's going to marry well. She marries a Virginian. They're very well uh, established in Washington, D.C. society. One of her closest friends is Dolly Madison, who uh, at this point lives like just along li alongside Lafayette Square Park. And she is sort of the hostess of DC. She is the person that you need to know. So through her friendship with Dolly Madison, Rose O'Neill Greenhow becomes very well connected in the city. Anybody of import knows Rose and Rose knows them. Her husband works for the State Department, uh, which is gonna take him all over and it's a very, um, prestigious position, but then he goes to San Francisco, California, and he dies in this sort of freak accident, kind of stepping off of a steep curb embankment. It's kind of a weird thing, like he steps off this steep curb, falls, hits his head, and he dies. So she is widowed in 1854. Um, she's widowed, but luckily he has left her with a pretty solid pension, uh, and she has all of these connections, so she establishes herself in a house on 16th Street, just about four blocks from the White House. So she's living a pretty decent widowed life in Washington, D.C. His death, though, is really going to spur her passion for the Southern cause. So we've touched on this in previous episodes, but I think it's very easy to sort of think of the Civil War as like this thing that broke out in 1861. But that's not really no. how it happens, no. right? There's the, these decades of tension and disagreement and legislation. And we, we kind of mentioned this, I think particularly with Henry Clay, that sort of every 10 years from our founding to 1860, there's like a moment where we think we're going to split. Yeah. And they managed to kick the can down the road. And yeah. Then... And by the 1850s, it's getting quite heated. Yes. Things are getting increasingly bloody across the United States. Um, you know, her husband is widowed in 1854. Then we're going to have Preston Brooks beating uh, Charles Sumner on the floor of the Senate two years later. Uh, things are getting pretty, pretty passionate. And she really throws herself into the Southern cause. Maybe this is because her husband was a Virginian and he's departed. Maybe it's because of her slave owning past. It's hard to know exactly what her motivation is, but she becomes really all in on the Southern cause. And she, even before Lincoln is elected, is pushing for the South to secede because she believes that secession is the only way the South can, can continue its, its lifestyle the way to which it has grown accustomed. She's pretty openly sympathetic. She's not very like shy about her opinions. And so she catches the eye of a man uh, named Captain Thomas Jordan. He's a US Army captain, and he basically recruits her in 1860 for a pro-South spy ring. Now, he is in the United States Army. He will ultimately resign and join the Confederacy. And then he basically kind of becomes her handler, as it were. So while he's working with the South, she is the one who's sending, this is who she's sending her information to. Yeah. 
Yes. Uh, she So, Rosalind Greenhouse, really interesting to me. She's got a lot of Southern connection. And it really, I feel like she's a great example that Maryland was not a northern state, particularly. Um, Maryland had slaves, and it had very divided loyalties. As you can tell, she was born in Maryland, and she moves to D.C., but sort of maintains a very southern stance, and she becomes uh, very closely aligned. And another person who uh, will also... Uh, have a similar trajectory to Rose is John Wilkes Booth, also born in Maryland, becomes very Southern aligned. And, and she like comes from not a whole lot and rises like her marriage makes her really uh, important. And she's sort of fr- her friendship with Dolly Madison and to the point where her sister uh, marries Dolly Madison's nephew, uh, her, their child is going to eventually marry Stephen Douglas. So she's pretty well connected uh, socially uh, in Washington, D.C., Um, And then the war looks like it's about to start. Lincoln gets elected. He's coming to Washington. The South is starting to secede. And uh, she is going to uh, start passing messages along to her handler, Thomas Jordan. And among other people, she uses, she has a whole ring of people that she kind of utilizes to help her with this. They estimate anywhere between 40 to 46 people were part of her spy ring underneath her feeding her information that she was then feeding to Thomas Jordan and primarily women. Most of the people that she had working as couriers and messengers were women, which I find really interesting, but it makes sense because they could sort of pass through unnoticed. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I feel like here, so Rosa Neal Greenhouse has, um, she has a cipher, like Thomas Jordan gives her this symbol ciphered of sort of the kind of exactly the sort of thing you'd see in like the spy museum. Like there, you know, this letter A means this and sort of to help translate messages. And she's going to use her sort of feminine wiles uh, to sort of extract information. And at this point, she's a widow. She's got some young kids. Uh, She's got her youngest daughter lives with her, but she sends her other daughters away to sort of get them out of harm's way. Um, But it is clear she's now, uh, based on our estimates of her birth, in her late 30s. And she's got friendships uh, all over sort of Washington, D.C. And the thing I feel like about Rose, and this is my like big thing about Rose O'Neill Greenhouse, if you look at pictures of her, and the pictures we have of her are from this time period. They're, she's in her late 30s, maybe early 40s. She's a pretty woman, but she's not, like you think of spies and you think of these absolute ravishing beauties, and that's not her. She sort of just has, I think, like a stately, you know, she looks well-bred, but she doesn't, she's not like ravishing. No, she's not. And there's indications that she really wasn't as a younger person either. She was pretty, certainly. But there's not really, you don't get the sense that she was ever a really you know, tearing beauty. My thing about Rose, though, I think, this is my like little, my supposition. I think Rose O'Neill Greenhouse had sex appeal. I think she had the kind of thing that you can't capture in a photo, particularly at the time. Like, I think she had, there's obviously something sort of beguiling in her manner because she's so good at this like she has numerous friendships that people just give her information there's got to be something about her I feel like uh that sort of helps with that I don't know what do you think maybe I'm wrong I definitely think (laughs) she must have had that I also think that even though she she comes from somewhat modest means although again a small plantation she has this good upbringing then she's sort of sent to live with her aunt who's kind of ahead of her time she's running this boarding house she's a businesswoman so I feel like Rose sort of gets maybe this this sophistication or 
um, worldliness, maybe without sounding like too lascivious there, but like, you know, she gets this worldliness that I think makes her very appealing to men in Washington, D.C. She's not this wilting flower. She's not a dummy. She's smart. Um, she's And she's connected. And that, you know, in D.C., connection and power is is sexy, right? That means so much. And that's what often, you know, so many of various affairs and things that end up happening in D.C. happen because people crave power and access to power. And she has that because of who she knows. And she's also not looking to get ma married again. And I think that that's important too. Like she's not this young ingenue on the marriage mart trying to get some, you know, hook, get her hooks into some guy. Like she's done that. She's been to the circus. Like she's looking to, you know, kind of hang out. And I feel like there's some part of that too, that she, you know, guys just like enjoy the fact that she's discreet. Like she has to be discreet because, you know, she's a spy, but her cover reason is, well, you know, I'm an, a respectable widow and I have to maintain my respectability. But so they, I feel like that sort of plays into it as well. There's also, I think, sort of a fascinating kind of psychological aspect of this that, like, when a woman's dedicated to a cause, even if it's a cause that you disagree with, like, it's noble. There's, like, yeah. something noble about her activity. Even if you're maybe on the union side, it's, like, hard to be mad at her because women are so pure of heart and pure of intention. Um, but you're right. She uses, we say her feminine wiles, but I think you're right. She had something a little innate that isn't captured in pictures. Because if you, when I show like pictures of her on tour, people are expecting this young, gorgeous by 21st century standards woman. And she is, she's, by the time we get to the Civil War, she's in her 40s, um, which in that period, you know, she'd had four children, she's widowed, you know, she's well along into her life. But yet she has an air of something that I think appeals. And she's really quite clever because of her connections. She can invite people to her house from all kinds of backgrounds. It's not weird or it doesn't initially raise suspicion that she's talking to army officers and various members of Congress, some of which in 1860 are still quite pro-Confederacy and pro-South. So she's able to sort of dabble in these worlds. She talks to businessmen. She talks to various um, kind of men who are connected on the financial aspect to the South. Um, so all of these are people that she really seeks for information and she gathers as much as she can get. She keeps all this information in her house and then she uses the couriers and messengers to share and deliver this information to Captain Jordan but also directly to General Beauregard of the Confederate Army. And it's this information that she's gathering early on that's really gonna be significant. Um, so when we're thinking about the Civil War, there's sort of like shots fired at Fort Sumner, there's kind of this immediate shuffling of troops, and then there's a bit of a standstill for a few months where there's no major military action, everybody's kind of on you know pins and needles, what's gonna happen, and there's going to be this first big battle. Uh, there's gonna be this first big battle and the Union Army feels that they have the advantage. They are going to uh, essentially surprise the Confederacy. It's going to be a rout. They're gonna win this. It's gonna be one and done. And people in Washington, D.C., are going to plan to go out and watch this battle. I mean, congressmen and important people are gonna get into their carriages and travel the 30 miles out of DC to what is now Manassas, Virginia to watch this first battle. And they think it's gonna be this huge union victory, but it's not. 
because Rose gets the information there first. And she does this using a young woman named Betty Duvall, who we talk about on our Wicked Georgetown tour, a young, uh, lovely woman who is going to carry this message wrapped up in her hair. She, she wraps it up into her hair um, so that it won't be detected as she's trying to escape Washington, D.C. She disguises herself as like a common milkmaid uh, to sort of escape out. And she rides all the way and gets that information to Beauregard in enough time that the Confederacy can be ready. And so what happens is as they're watching this battle unfold, uh, people are expecting Union's going to win, war's going to be over, that's it. And what happens is the Confederacy is ready, they're in place, and they actually are fighting really, really well. And the Union Army has to beat a hasty retreat. Uh, and caught up in watching this battle is a man by the name of Senator Henry Wilson. So we talked about Henry Wilson last, last week. week. Uh, we talked about his death. He does not die here, spoilers. No, he does not die here. He does, if you listen to our last week's episode, he dies many, several years in the future. Um, but Henry Wilson is from Massachusetts. He's a strong abolitionist. He really believes in the Union cause. And two things about Henry Wilson are going to be pretty important here. First of all, uh, Henry Wilson is on the Military Affairs Committee, which is today known as the Armed Services Committee, which by the name you could probably figure out has something to do with the military. Um, and the other thing is he and Rose O'Neill Greenhow are friends. And yes, by friends, we're pretty sure, you know, friends. The only evidence we have is letters. So it's hard to say what could have occurred. Whatever. He writes her love letters, guys. Like, come on, let's not lie. Um, she consider, Rose considers Henry Wilson to be her prize source. And in my mind, like, men like to show off, particularly when you're having an extramarital affair with, like, an attractive and mysterious widow. My, in my mind, he wants to show her that he's, like, in the know and knows all the big stuff. And, of course, Rose encourages this. Oh, yes, honey, tell me everything. And he, like, tells her all about the military's plans for the first battle, about the fortifications around Washington, where the, you know, she can kind of figure out where the vulnerabilities are. And so she gets all this good information, which I'm guessing is pillow talk, although, you know, we'll just leave that to you guys. Um, and so she's going to tell, uh, pass all this information along. And so somehow the Confederate armies know exactly where the Union army is going to be for the first battle of the Civil War, the Battle of Bull Run. Uh, and it's this huge Union defeat. And Henry Wilson is, of course, watching this because members of Congress have taken their carriages and picnics and their families and gone off to, like, a bluff overlooking the battlefield and are watching this happening. And I'm not a military expert, but it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that things are not going as well as they'd hoped for the Union. And so they have to run back to their carriages and, like, beat a hasty retreat because the army's losing and it's really bad. Except for Wilson, because Wilson is almost so shocked by what he's seeing, he's slow to beat that retreat and his carriage is going to be crushed. He's going to almost be captured by the Confederate army. Imagine if he had been. And it's a really sort of embarrassing return to Washington for Wilson because he was the head of this committee. He was confident that they had good intel and that their plans were kept secret, but he's probably thinking, did I say something or let it slip to someone what was happening? And I will say in, in Wilson's defense, 
we do have a good cachet of the letters between the two of them. There is no nothing explicit in the letters about this particular battle. So if he did reveal it, it probably would have been in person. And there have been some researchers who think it might have been his clerk, uh, a man named Horace White, who was also very friendly with Rose, and that his clerk might have let it slip in the way that every self-advancing kind of clerk assistant in D.C. wants to be, which is look how much I know, look how important my boss is. Mm -hmm, but someone scene. in the Wilson team. This is how you know that there's no conspiracy at the heart of our government, because Washington, D.C. always has been and always will be made up of people who like want to slip a little information out to make themselves look better. So I'm just saying. So this is really Rose. Rose um, gets credit uh, for helping the Confederate Army you know, beat back the Union Army, have what is kind of their first victory, and basically sends a signal to the Union Army that this is not going to just be a one-and-done war. The Confederate Army is a force to reckon with. She becomes known as Rebel Rose in the South, and, uh, you know, she is really given the credit for that, and she is going to just continue to run with this, to continue to gather evidence and information and pass it along. The thing is, she's got this house on 16th Street, and she has all these people coming and going and coming and going, all the time during the war. And a lot of them are very, uh, are known to be sympathetic to the South or openly uh, working with the Confederacy. So there's a man by the name of Alan Pinkerton, who we really should do an episode on. He yeah, also has a crazy desk, uh, a yes. crazy death, Alan Pinkerton. But Pinkerton had been a detective, and he has now uh, sort of turned his attention to being part of the newly formed Secret Service. And in 1861, uh, which is not all that long into the Civil War, really, in 1861, he's noticing that there's a lot of stuff happening at Rose's house, and so he's going to put her under house arrest. He will come to call her home Fort Greenhow because of how many of these people sort of come and go. And when he finally searches her house... See, Rose had one flaw, which was that she kept everything in a typical female fashion, right? Never throw anything out. You got to keep it all. And he finds everything. He finds letters, messages, the cipher and the codes, maps, uh, detailed information about military tribunates. This is not the kind of stuff a woman would conceivably just have lying around accidentally. And he finds the love letters. So that's why we have them today. We have the love letters between Rose and Henry Wilson, but also between uh, letters between Rose and other members of the government because she kept them all and Pinkerton acquired them. So there's going to be enough information for Pinkerton to kind of definitively say Rose O'Neill Greenhow is working against the U.S. government. So they're going to keep her under house arrest, which seems like a good idea, except Rose can't stop. She just keeps passing along information. She keeps utilizing her spy network from her house. And then Rose does something that makes me chuckle. She doesn't like being kept under house arrest. So she writes a letter to her good friend, a man named William Seward, who is Secretary of State under President Lincoln at the time. And she complains to Seward and she says, I don't like being kept in my house. I am uncomfortable. Being under house arrest is, is insulting and terrible. And she thinks that he's going to have sympathy on her <laughs> and let her go. And instead it gets leaked to the press. And so what the American public in the North reads is a letter that this known Confederate spy is allowed to live in her 16th Street beautiful brownstone and that she's allowed to stay in her home and have visitors and people get really angry because they think the union government is being too lax about these spies so this letter backfires because now they have no good reason to keep her under house arrest 
and they move her to prison. And when I say prison, they take her to the old Capitol prison. So she moves back to the building she had lived in like 25 years earlier, which is sort of ironic. Uh, so she's at the old Capitol prison, but she is, you know, as we mentioned before, a mother. She had four daughters, but one daughter is still young enough to live with her. Uh, little Rose is what they called her, uh, her youngest daughter, Rose. She's eight years old in January of 1862 when Rose gets moved to prison. And they say, you know, it would be really cruel to separate mother from daughter. That would be unseemly. So we're just going to incarcerate this eight-year-old with her mother. So their compromise is that it is better to put this child in jail True. Than to not, which I don't Obviously. know. I don't know what's better to separate them or to put the child in jail with her, but that's the choice that they make. I don't know that. I mean, that is a hard one. I would have sent her like, I would have sent her to be with her sisters out of harm's way. Exactly. I don't know. Yeah. Not to mention D DC is not the safest place to be living in the civil war. Right. I, f I feel like given the fact that Rose sends her other daughters away, I feel like keeping her youngest daughter with her is in some way a tactic. Yeah. You know, like to gain sympathy or something. I feel like there's there's calculation there. It's, it's interesting. And of course, uh, while Rose is imprisoned at the old Capitol prison, she cannot stop, right? She's still passing messages. She's still smuggling in information. She somehow man manages to smuggle in a Confederate flag, and she waves the Confederate flag out of the window of this prison. At one point, they have to assign two guards specifically to watch Rose, and their number one instruction is to keep her away from the windows, which is how she seems to be passing and gathering information. But even at this point in the war, 1862, only a couple years in, espionage has already exploded. There are so many spies, particularly spying for the South, that this prison is full of them. And they have a panel that's trying to kind of handle these espionage charges, and they're overwhelmed. There's two men trying to try all of these espionage cases. So Rose never faces trial. Some people say it's because it, her case just never comes up. Some historians speculate that she knew too much, that if they put her on the stand, she might spill a ton of government secrets that would then be published in the press. And there was some fear that she was so sympathetic that there it could attract chaos. So for whatever reason, Rose never goes to trial. And eventually they just kind of say, you know what, honey, you love the South so much you're banished there. Just go stay in the Confederacy. You want to live in the South? You love the South? Go. Just go and never come back. Right. Right. They said they basically... Exile, I guess. Exile, yeah, to the South. She sent in May of 1862, so the war is not even a year old. And so think about, like how much of a spy and how much information she must have been must have been going through her that the war is not even a year old she's been in prison for months and now she's being basically deported uh so she was pretty successful and she's getting all kinds of good information and she gets to the south and she gets like a hero's welcome you know, Jefferson Davis himself meets with her and she's got, uh, he immediately wants to put her right back to work. She gets a parade essentially in Richmond, like it's a big deal. Um, 
And so she does. She continues to work for the South. She writes about the South and she's going to uh, cultivate her sources and basically go on a, essentially a goodwill tour in France and England uh, to sort of persuade people of uh, the South's cause. Europe, particularly England, had maintained a very cautious neutrality during the Civil War because they were super dependent on Southern cotton, but they really didn't like the slavery thing. And so they just kind of were like setting back going, I don't know. Let's just see how this turns out, guys. And Rose O'Neill Greenhow goes over and basically starts saying, look at if the South loses, you're going to lose all this cotton and there goes your industry. So obviously you need to support us despite your misgivings about slavery. Uh, and so she's basically going to... Um, she goes mostly to Britain. She meets all kinds of dignitaries and she meets with Queen Victoria and she even gets engaged again while she's over there, which leads me to believe like she's got some there's she's got some sort of charisma. She meets an earl and they get engaged. And now by this time, she's like in her 40s. And so she's she's got it going on. That's what I'm saying about Rose. <laughs> um but, you know, she's being treated like a true diplomat. Like, she's given right. audience with all these important people. Uh, she's obviously trying to get, gin up support for the South, some of it financial, some of it just promise of aid, uh, ships and things that they would need. But it's sort of interesting. Like, she's sent as this, like, emissary of the Confederacy and given, you know, I think the same treatment that someone like Jefferson Davis would have been given if he had been going over himself. So she's sort of like mm -hmm. this, this important government representative. Which is fascinating to me, I think. Um, she's also going to write her memoir. She's also self-promoting <laughs> while oh, she's super there. Duper. So you expect, like, spies to be kind of quiet, particularly while they're still spying. <laughs> but not Rose. Rose writes a memoir uh, called My Imprisonment in the First Year of Abolition Rule in Washington. And she spills all her secrets. Like, part of the reason we know all of this stuff is she writes a very self-serving memoir and talks all about, like, this is the stuff I did. I did it. I don't take it back. And I do it again. And I'm super proud of it. And it's a bestseller. She makes herself a lot of money. Uh, about $35,000 in today's money. And the way I tell this on the tour, Rose doesn't really trust banks which is not unusual in those days, particularly in a war, particularly in the South. She wants her gold where she can see it. And that's the thing. She um, wants gold. She doesn't want any kind of paper currency because no. there's so much counterfeit currency. There's so much inflation. And, you know, because it's a war, right? Different currency with different value. She yeah. wants cold, hard gold. gold. Literally cold, hard cash. And by this time, like, as much as she believes in the Confederacy, the Confederate script, their money, is worth nothing. So she doesn't want to get it in cash. She wants it She's eagle. no dummy. No, you. And she's going to sew the linings of all of her clothes with the gold coins that she gets from the cell of her memoir. Which I find, like, bonkers. Because you think about how they dressed back then. The layers yeah. upon layers of underthings and petticoats and skirts. So you're already wearing a proper woman would have already been wearing all this stuff. And then she's going to add $2,000 in gold coins in pouches and pockets and, and sewn into the linings. And, and gold is heavy, y'all. Yeah. Like, gold is not, like, you see in the movies, people pick up gold bars like it's nothing. No, like, gold is really, really heavy. And so imagine sewing all that into the linings of your petticoats and your dresses, and you're already wearing a corset. And it just seems like, why would you add that extra weight? I don't know. 
Anyway. I always say on my tour, though, if you're a woman who's ever traveled by yourself, you like to keep your money close to you. That's true. Keep your money close. Yes. So, yeah, she departs um, from England. She's got all this money literally sewn into her. She wants it on her at all times. <laughs> She's going to make the long a transatlantic journey. They depart in August, um, and she's carrying this money plus a lot of important information for the Confederacy. And it's going to be a couple months. Like we think about this trip today, maybe a couple weeks. It's a couple months on this boat, and they are approaching North Carolina in October of 1864. And their ship is going to run aground at the mouth of Cape Fear River because they are being pursued by a Union gunboat called the Niffin, um, which has tracked them because they have heard that there is money and supplies and information for the Confederacy. So they're like, we want to get this boat. Which there is. <laughs> which they are 100% correct about. And Rose is thinking to herself, I'm not going back to jail. Mm -mm. I'm, not, I'm not doing it. I want to get back to my family. I've done my part. I have my money. I'm getting out of here. So she gets into a rowboat. And I mean, she's, she is close to shore. Um, this is not, it is not like a matter of her being out in the middle of the ocean. She is right at the mouth of this river. And she's in this rowboat. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been out down in North Carolina in October, uh, especially when you're getting kind of towards the end of storm season. But it can be a little rowdy on the, the shore there, a little rowdy along the shoreline. And there are these massive waves. And sure enough, wave comes along going to capsize the boat and the way that i say this on my tour i tell people that she sews the gold into the linings of her dresses which is unfortunate when she's in a boating accident and the boat capsizes and she's weighed down so much by all the gold that she drowns she has really no chance by the time you figure the dress itself plus all that gold even if she was a strong swimmer which we don't believe she was there's just no chance she is going to be absolutely drowned by the weight of her gold. And I always sort of say, depending on how you feel about her activities, it's sort of this terrible tragedy or a little bit of poetic justice to be drowned by this money she made exploiting her, her espionage against the United States government. I think it's a little of both, to be honest. It kind of tickles me. The irony is rich. Now, the reason the reason we know that she's drowned by her gold is they find her body four or five days later. Uh, so her body washes up. It is recovered. And all the gold is still there. Uh, she's also found with her private notebook um, where she kept her own notes, which is where we get some of uh, this information about her life. And she had a copy of her book, her memoir that she had written with a note to her daughter inside, which is nice. definitely a little tragic there. Now, um... What's interesting to me is how sort of the Confederacy deals with her death. I mean, she's given like a military hero's funeral. She's given a military funeral, in fact. She is treated like a soldier that has died on the battlefield. And so there's this massive military funeral in Wilmington, North Carolina. She's buried in Oakdale, Oakdale Cemetery in Wilmington. She has, as a grave marker, this giant cross that specifically sort of celebrates and denotes her role as a messenger for the Confederate Army. So she's really honored um, as being a key part of the Confederate Army's espionage ring and, and information ring during the war. Um, she, so she, yeah, she gets sort of a hero's funeral and, um, is super well known. She's one of the best known civil war spies and she's got a lot of 
sort of pop culture reference, which is obviously Becca's uh, portion. We mentioned Candon's book, which is outstanding, and she, she really digs into the story about Rose O'Neill Greenhow and sort of talks about how she was uh, sort of the head of this ring of spies. But that's not the only place. It is the best place, but it is not the only place uh, where you can find Rose's story. Yeah, Rose is really interesting to me, and we, we touch on this a little bit in previous episodes, but sort of the lost cause mythology of the South Rose becomes like a really big part of this as we have these sort of sons and daughters of the Confederacy and these Confederate heritage groups that spring up uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, They really see Rose as kind of like this ideal of a Southern woman, right? Willing to die for the cause. And so like they name awards after her. There's a a woman's auxiliary group as part of the Sons of Confederate Veterans or whatever. They, They call themselves like, the Rebel Roses, named after Rose O'Neill Greenhow. Um, so there's sort of this weird thing where she gets kind of the second wave of attention uh, as part of the Lost Cause kind of mythologizing of the Confederacy. And then there was this weird little moment in the 1990s where all of a sudden Rose was popping up in things. There's a movie which I have not seen, but trust me when I say I'm literally going to go watch it this week. It's called The Rose and the Jackal. It came out in 1990. It stars Christopher Reeve uh, as Alan Pinkerton. And in their version, Alan Pinkerton, the detective, twist falls in love with Rose O'Neill Greenhow while he's keeping her under house arrest. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Which I'm 100% going to go watch this. I love Christopher Reeve, obviously. He is my Superman forever. And then um, a few years later, there was a TV movie that was going to be hopefully turned into a series that never was, uh, done in 1993, produced by Steven Spielberg, called The Class of 61. And when they say Class of 61, they mean 1861, the West Point class. And so it's about these men who enter West Point, are kind of this, you know, have been at West Point, they're this united group, and then in their last year at West Point, the Civil War breaks out, and they are split in two. Um, And there's all these great stories, if you look at the West Point classes in the 1850s of all these men who had served together and been close. And then when the war begins, they find themselves on opposite sides. So this is a, a, a series that looks at that. And Rose O'Neill Greenhow is featured in that. She was also featured in a Canadian TV series just a few years ago called The Pinkertons, which look at kind of famous cases that the Pinkerton detectives took on. So she's gotten a little bit of like pop culture um, attention. I think you could really do like a, an interesting like drama about Rose O'Neill Greenhow and her life and and the people she was connected to. Uh, I think it could be really fascinating. I do too. I think you should, we could also do like a, uh, the feminist should reclaim Rose O'Neill Greenhow too. I think she, there's like a real, like um, she, she was not, uh, there's a tendency to make her either a heroine or sinner. And I feel like neither are particularly correct. I feel like she wanted to do something and um you know she for i think she kind of fell into this partly for economic reasons possibly but partly just because she could and wanted to do this thing and spied and i think it's pretty cool well and i think there's definitely an exploration that could be done uh, about the role of women like this in the success of the confederacy right you could not have the the confederacy the secession of the southern states the confederacies 
rain. And then again, kind of this sort of lost cause rec reclamation without women like Rose O'Neill Greenhouse. Oh, yeah, super. So it's sort of fascinating. There's a few places in D.C. where you can find Rose. Uh, the National Portrait Gallery in typically their Civil War exhibit space uh, usually has a photograph uh, of Rose and little Rose, so Rose and her daughter. Uh, she was photographed at the old Capitol prison. There's a couple images from that sitting. Uh, there's usually one that's typically displayed. Uh, it was taken by Matthew Brady, or at least his studio. We don't know for sure if Matthew Brady himself took that photo. Uh, he had a studio in Washington, D.C. He photographed a lot of people, but he also worked with uh, a bunch of people who worked for him. So it's hard to tell whether he took it or not. Um, but this is like a proper kind of portrait of this female spy. Um, so if you visit the National Portrait Gallery, be sure to look for that. Uh, the National Archives has quite a bit of her letters and writings. Um, the Alan Pinkerton, when he takes it, turns it over to the U.S. government, and it has now found its way to the archives. They're not usually displayed in person, but you can go on the archives website, and they've actually digitized a big chunk of Rose O'Neill Greenhouse collection. So you can see some of the letters. You can see her original cipher, which is pretty cool, the cipher that she used. Um, but there's some really interesting information in the archives about her and her spy activities. Yes. You can also hear about her on two of our tours. Our Capitol Hill Scandals tour takes you by where she was imprisoned. And our Georgetown tour, we talk about, uh, we have a couple Georgetown tours. We have the historic Georgetown tour and the wicked Georgetown tour. And we talk, and the ghost of Georgetown. So we talk about her on, I think, all three of them. We'll pretty much um, talk about um, her, particularly uh, Betty Duvall and kind of her passing of information down to General Beauregard. Two of the women who were in her spy ring are buried at Oak Hill Cemetery, which we highlighted earlier this month on the podcast. We did. So Rose, yes. Rose kind of touches into a lot of different areas. Rose is all over the place, guys. This is Rose's world. It's Rose's world. We're just living in it. We're just here. Um, yeah, I'm really, uh, this has been so much fun talking about all this stuff in October, particularly Rose has been really great. Yeah, I love um, um, doing this time of year where I'm out in Georgetown and it's like 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, it's dark, and the the leaves are rustling and we're talking about these women, you know, in disguise with messages yes. hidden in their hair, trying to slip the Union line and get to the Confederacy, and it's just, um, it's, it's spooky season to me, it's just like a good spooky season story. And then this image of Rose sort of way down by her gold you know such a metaphor it's such a metaphor so many things. oh my gosh such a good metaphor yes so yeah this uh, is this is rose o'neill greenhow and uh hopefully you will buy cannon's book wild women of washington and uh learn more about other women just as wild as rose was yes definitely fun this has been such a fun october talking about all of these um, interesting stories around Washington, the sort of scandals. Um, and we are, I think, done. We're done with October. This is, this is the last episode of October. We're moving into November. We're going to so, talk election. Our way. Of 1912. <laughs> We're going to talk about the election in 1912. We are most assuredly <laughs> not going to talk about no. any anything else that may be happening this November. Nope. We're going to talk about older <laughs> elections over 100 years ago. We yeah, talked about... Hinted about this a few months ago, and we decided to just go for it. We're going to talk about the 1912 election, break down all the major characters, and not at all focus on what's happening present day. That, that we promise you. 
Of course, to make sure you're staying up to date with all of our episodes, make sure that you're subscribing no matter where you listen to your podcast, whether it's through iTunes, whether it's through Google, Spotify, anything like that, make sure you're subscribing. And if you have a chance to like and review and rate us, we love your ratings. We love to hear your feedback on the podcast. You can also catch us on social media at Tour Guide Tell All on Instagram and Facebook and at Tour Guide Tell on Twitter. So please tweet us your thoughts, your suggestions. Um, we're working on wrapping up the rest of our episode ideas for season one. So if you have ideas or suggestions or questions that you'd like us to tackle in the last few months of our season one episodes, let us know because we'd yes. love to hear your thoughts. Yes. Um, if you want to, we, we also want to give a shout out to our Patreons. Uh, we have been, it's been so much fun having our Patreons. Uh, Patreon is at Tour Guide Tell All and they get special bonus episodes and really help us support the podcast and kind of help us do what we do, which is, you know, kind of make this. Um, and so we love them the most. And, and you get all uh, kinds of special goodies if you're a patron. Get special goodies and it'll be, and maybe like, a special, I think there's going to be a special companion episode to our 1912 um, pod. We're going to do a special Patreon only. And we will be back with you next week when we talk a little bit more about uh, election 1912. We'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.